when you have far less experience and you know that the Mitchells are very modest people. That wasn't a joke. The joke's coming. The joke's coming. That wasn't a joke. <laughs> there you go. Uh, <laughs> I do know uh, that I have nothing to say whatsoever in terms of counsel for their ongoing ministry. If they've managed to make it through 30 years, then I think they understand a thing or two about what it takes to persevere. So instead, I've decided to talk about Ahab and Jezebel, because when you think of Pastor and Mrs. Mitchell's 30 years of ministry here at Coffs Harbour Bible Church, <laughs> no, you don't think of Ahab and Jezebel. <laughs> uh, <laughs> No, no, I didn't call my mother Jezebel. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, I never would. <laughs> but actually, I do want to talk about Ahab and Jezebel, but perhaps in a way that you've never thought about before. And I hope you'll see when we get to the end how this particular story is highly appropriate for this occasion. Our text is 1 Kings chapter 21. So if you could please turn there, 1 Kings chapter 21. But before we get to that, I want to read some verses in Deuteronomy chapter 16. So I would encourage you to keep a bookmark in 1 Kings chapter 21 and uh, go back to, uh, to Deuteronomy chapter 16 because that's where we'll have our first reading. Before we get into our message though, let's pray and commit our time to the Lord. Father, we thank you uh, for uh, the encouragement it is to worship you. Uh, to sing together as your people, to pray together, uh, to worship you with our substance. Yes, our worship is directed to you, but as we worship, we find the blessings falling down upon us. We thank you for our time of worship this morning. We thank you for God's word as it came to us. We thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit. And we know that all is vain unless the Spirit comes down. And we just pray for the work of your Spirit in our midst this evening. Pray that he would open our minds to understand the truths of Scripture and we pray that he would take those truths and write them upon our hearts. And we ask all of these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. When we think of leaders in the Old Testament, our minds immediately go to men like Moses and Joshua, Samuel and David. We think of the judges we think of the kings. Uh, perhaps we also think of the prophets and the priests who also exercised a ministry of spiritual leadership. We think of men like Elijah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. What we don't often think about, how, uh, what we don't often think about is that below the judges and the kings were a whole host of other leaders, uh, men who were leaders of their tribe. Uh, men who exercised authority in their particular town or city. We see this even before Israel settled in the Promised Land. There are references in the books of Exodus and Numbers to elders. For example, in Numbers chapter 11, verse 16, we read this, And the Lord said unto Moses, Gather unto me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom thou knowest to be the elders of the people and officers over them. Uh, these 70 elders were most likely the heads of the 12 tribes, plus the heads of family groups within those tribes. We know that right at the beginning of the Exodus, 
Uh, Moses' father-in-law Jethro advised him to appoint judges to assist him in the administration of justice. And perhaps it was the elders who filled that role. Uh, The verse I just quoted before from Numbers referred to these 70 elders as being officers over the people. That word carries the, uh, the, the idea of oversight and of legal authority. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, we have instructions for what God's people were to do when they settled in the promised land. And I want you to note what Moses said about leaders at the local level, verses 18 through to verse 20. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 18. Judges and officers shalt thou make thee in all thy gates, which the Lord thy God giveth thee throughout thy tribes. And they shall judge the people with just judgment. Thou shalt not rest judgment. Thou shalt not respect persons, neither take a gift. For a gift doth blind the eyes of the wise and pervert the words of the righteous. That which is altogether just shalt thou follow, that thou mayest live and inherit the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Judges and officers shalt thou make in all thy gates. Every town and city was to have its own magistrates, men responsible for the administration and enforcement of God's law. That's the instruction here. These local leaders were to hear and rule on disputes and so forth. And that made good sense. The national leader, the judge, and later on the king couldn't possibly hear every case. He couldn't possibly ensure the administration of justice in every town and city in Israel. Notice that these local leaders, uh, these magistrates and officers, were to judge the people with just judgment. They were to be fair and upright in their decisions. And that meant they were not to rest judgment. That is, they were not to pervert justice. They were not to act contrary to what was right and fair. Uh, They were not to respect persons, that is, they were not to show partiality or favoritism. The poor man was to be afforded the same justice as the rich man. Uh, The powerful and well-connected would be treated the same as the weak and the powerless. The judge was not to favour his own friends and family. Neither were the judges to take a gift, it says here. And that refers to taking bribes. Because, as verse 19 says, a gift, a bribe, doth blind the eyes of the wise and pervert the words of the righteous. The summary is given at the beginning of verse 20. That which is altogether just shalt thou follow. It couldn't be clearer, could it? When Israel entered the land, they put this instruction into practice. We don't see too many examples in the Old Testament because the narrative focuses more on national leaders. But we see enough to recognise that there was this system of local leadership, local government, elders who functioned as civic leaders and magistrates. One example that comes to mind is found in the last chapter of the book of Ruth. It was ten of the elders of the city of Bethlehem who ruled on the matter of ancestral land and the marriage of Boaz to Ruth. Now I say all of this to give some perspective to the text that I want to preach from this evening. 1 Kings chapter 21 verses 1 through 16. Please if you would follow along as I read these verses now. 1 Kings chapter 21 verse 1. 
And it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel, hard by the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And Ahab spake unto Naboth, saying, Give me the vineyard, that I may have it for a garden of herbs, because it is near unto my house, and I will give thee for it a better vineyard than it, or, if it seem good to thee, I will give thee the worth of it in money. And Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid it me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. And Ahab came into his house heavy and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give thee the inheritance of my fathers. And he laid him down upon his bed and turned away his face and would eat no bread. Poor Ahab. But Jezebel his wife came to him and said unto him, Why is thy spirit so sad that thou eatest no bread? And he said unto her, Because I spake unto Naboth the Jezreelite, and said unto him, Give me thy vineyard for money, or else if it please thee, I will give thee another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give thee my vineyard. And Jezebel his wife said unto him, Dost thou not govern the kingdom of Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let thine heart be merry. I will give thee the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, and sealed them with his seal, and sent the letters unto the elders and to the nobles that were in his city, dwelling with Naboth. And she wrote in the letters, saying, Proclaim a fast, and set Naboth on high among the people, and set two men, sons of Belial, before him, to bear witness against him, saying, Thou didst blaspheme God and the king, and then carry him out, and stone him, that he may die. And the men of his city, even the elders and the nobles, who were the inhabitants in his city, did as Jezebel had sent unto them, and as it was written in the letters which she had sent unto them. They proclaimed a fast, and set Naboth on high among the people. And there came in two men, children of Belial, and sat before him. And the men of Belial witnessed against him, even against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth did blaspheme God and the king. And they carried him forth out of the city, and stoned him with the stones, that he died. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth is stoned, and is dead. And it came to pass... When Jezebel heard that Naboth was stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give thee for money. For Naboth is not alive, but dead. And it came to pass, when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab rose up to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Now this story is well known to most of us, and we've probably heard sermons on it before. Ahab was the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Jezebel, his wife, was the daughter of the Phoenician king. And together they led the nation into apostasy on a grand scale. This is what is said about Ahab in chapter 16, verse 30. It says, And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. Verse 33, And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. Ahab and particularly Jezebel were devoted to the worship of false gods, the god Baal and the goddess Ashtaroth or Astarte. Ahab built a temple to Baal in the capital city of Samaria and Jezebel had hundreds of pagan prophets on her payroll. Baal worship effectively became the state religion under Ahab's reign and it was an abomination to the Lord. Uh, not only did it involve devotion to idols, 
this worship probably included child sacrifice as well as sexual immorality. Uh, this wasn't the gentle, earth-loving neo-paganism that wafts around up north where I live. No, this was dark, brutal devotion to malevolent deities. Now, the story in this chapter is fairly easy to follow. Ahab wanted a vineyard that was next door to his palace in Samaria, but the owner, a man named Naboth, refused to sell it. Naboth lived in a town called Jezreel, about 11 kilometers from Samaria, but he owned this parcel of land. And as I said, he would not sell it or exchange it, and that was because he was not permitted to under God's law. The land the vineyard was on was ancestral land. It had come down from his fathers. It was their allotted portion in the promised land, and it could only be sold in the case of extreme poverty. And even then, it was to be returned to the original owner in the year of Jubilee. This is why Naboth said to Ahab in verse 3, The Lord forbid it me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. When Ahab was refused the vineyard, he went home and sulked. He had a grown-up temper tantrum. He lay down upon his bed and turned away his face and would eat no bread. When Jezebel discovered the cause of her husband's upset, she swiftly conspired to get the land for him. Her idea of monarchy was completely selfish and tyrannical. Uh, the monarch should be able to do and to have whatsoever he or she pleases. Verse 7, Dost thou now govern the kingdom of Israel? She said to Ahab. Aren't you in charge, Ahab? Shouldn't you be able to have whatever you want? Who has greater authority? Than you. The plan she devised to acquire Naboth's vineyard was quite simple. And yet it had one particularly pernicious feature. Ahab was to be accused and found guilty of committing a capital offence and executed. But what was especially evil about this plan was that he was to be accused of a capital crime that also involved the confiscation of his land. Jezebel had no regard for the law of God, but somehow she knew that according to the law, if any individual or a city was guilty of apostasy, of departing from the one true and living God and serving idols, they were to be executed and their houses destroyed. If a whole city apostatized, it was to be razed to the ground and never built on again. This is all laid out in Deuteronomy chapter 13. She could have chosen a number of capital crimes to accuse Naboth of, but she chose blasphemy and she chose treason because he would not only lose his life, but also his land. And it would then revert to the king. One author puts it this way. Since, for example, in the case of blasphemy, the property of the criminal was forfeited to the Lord, the property of traitors was regarded as forfeited to the king. There was also another feature of this plan. We don't find it here. But over in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 25, we learn that Naboth's sons were killed as well. Perhaps they were accused along with Naboth of blasphemy and treason and were executed when he was. Maybe they were murdered separately, we're not told. 
But whatever the case, Jezebel made sure that there would be no legal claim to the land after Naboth's death. The plan was to have the elders, uh, the magistrates of Jezreel, condemn and execute Naboth. Uh, these were the local leaders of the town where he lived. That's who Jezebel addressed the letters to. Verse 8, she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent the letters unto the elders and to the nobles that were in his city dwelling with Naboth. The local leaders were to proclaim a fast, a kind of communal act of repentance and contrition. Uh, it was designed to give the impression that something very serious had happened, some awful crime. They were to seat Naboth in a prominent place during this solemn occasion and then bring in two false witnesses to accuse Naboth of blasphemy and treason. Two witnesses were required to find a man guilty of a capital crime. Again, Jezebel seemed to have known what the law of God said. The term sons of Belial is mentioned here. This means worthless men, immoral men, Drunkards, men of low character, men who could be induced to bring such an accusation. They would accuse Naboth. The two witnesses would agree in their evidence. And on that basis, Naboth was to be condemned and executed by the local magistrates. This was the plan that was written down in a letter from Jezebel to the leaders of Jezreel. It was sent in Ahab's name with his seal on it. So these leaders probably took this letter as from the king. This was a royal command, though the text repeatedly refers to Jezebel. What she wrote. So maybe the elders of Jezreel knew this was Jezebel's idea, even if the letter was in Ahab's name. And here we come to the point of my sermon tonight. Look please at the response of the elders of Jezreel, the local leaders who were responsible for the administration of justice. Verse 11. And the men of his city, even the elders and the nobles who were the inhabitants in his city, did as Jezebel had sent unto them, and as it was written in the letters which she had sent unto them. They went along with this wicked plan. They proclaimed a fast, a sham display of piety and contrition. They induced men to give false testimony. They condemned and executed an innocent man, a godly man, a man who had respect for God's law. This was a show trial. This would have made Stalin and his cronies proud. This was murder. Pure and simple. The elders and judges of Jezreel knew full well what they were doing. If Naboth really did have some things to answer for, if genuine criminality was suspected, then why were they ordered to organise two men, sons of Belial, to bear witness against him? The part these local leaders played in this awful story is shocking. Their willingness to lie and murder at the behest of the monarch is deplorable. Now, I was reading some commentaries on this story in my preparation for this sermon. I think the great English Baptist theologian John Gill nailed it when he wrote this. That Jezebel should contrive so execrable a scheme 
and that there should be such sons of Belial among the common people to swear such falsehoods need not seem strange. But that the elders and nobles of the city, the chief magistrates thereof, should be so sadly and universally depraved as to execute such a piece of villainy is really surprising. Idolatry, when it prevails, takes away all sense of humanity and justice. That's true, isn't it? We're not surprised that this plan came from the heart and mind of Jezebel. We know how wicked she was. We're not surprised that there were worthless, immoral men, sons of Belial, who were induced to give false witness. But that the elders of Jezreel could behave this way, that surprises us. That's the really shocking part of this story. These were the men we read about in Deuteronomy chapter 16. Thou shalt not rest judgment, thou shalt not respect persons, neither take a gift. That which is altogether just shalt thou follow. When it came to these elders, the civic leaders of Jezreel, I wonder if their consciences ever troubled them. I wonder if there was any debate when the letter arrived. Well, should we do this? How can we do this? This is wrong. <laughs> I wonder if there was a vote. I wonder if some walked away and chose not to be part of this plan. Now, the text doesn't tell us, but I get the sense that they just did as they were directed. The record of their actions is fairly straightforward. Verse 11, and the men of his city, even the elders and the nobles who were the inhabitants in his city, did as Jezebel had sent unto them, and as it was written in the letters which she had sent unto them. Now the question I want us to ponder this evening is why? Why did they do something that was so clearly against God's law? Something so evidently unjust and evil. Even if their memory of God's law was a bit hazy, basic human decency, the law written in their hearts would have indicated that this was utterly wrong. I'd like to suggest that there were three possible reasons why the leaders of Jezreel behave this way. And this is important for us to pay attention to because there are occasions when we are directed or invited, or pressured, or tempted to do the wrong thing, to violate our conscience, break God's law. It might be at work. Your superior asks you to do something dishonest or unethical for the sake of the company, or to gain some other advantage. What do you do? You might be required at work or at school or in some other setting to su support and celebrate behaviours and lifestyles that God calls sin. We know the pressure is on to give our approval to homosexuality, to get on board with transgenderism, to embrace gender fluidity. What are you going to do when it's your job that's on the line? What are you going to do when you'll be sacked or not hired in the first place because you believe what the Bible says? What do you do as a church when the law no longer protects you, when it becomes a crime to speak against homosexuality, same-sex marriage or transgenderism? But then sometimes it's more personal, isn't it? It might be in a friendship, 
It might be with a member of your family. There is pressure to do something you know is wrong, to go against your beliefs. What do you do? We all get letters from Jezebel, don't we? And I suspect we're going to get more and more of them as our society gets further and further away from the Creator. And what do you set down in His Word? Now, as I said, there were three possible reasons why the elders and judges of Jezreel did as they were asked, why they were complicit in Naboth's murder. And these are the very same things that we must be wary of when the pressure is upon us to do the wrong thing. Here's the lesson. The first and perhaps most obvious reason why these men did this wicked thing is because they were afraid. <laughs> they were weakened. They were overcome by fear. They knew it was wrong, but they were too scared to do right, to, to disregard this letter from Jezebel. You don't mess around with Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel were tyrants. There's no doubt about it. It would not have been unreasonable for the elders of Jezreel to imagine that Jezebel would have had them killed if they failed to do what she wanted. Ahab's own servants were in fear of his ruthlessness. So we understand this. But it wasn't a legitimate excuse for these men. Naboth should not have lost his life because these men were too afraid to do the right thing. And it's not a legitimate excuse for us. We must not be weakened by fear. We must not allow fear to so overcome us that we violate our conscience. We go against what we know is right. Fear can cause us to be silent when we should speak. Fear can push us into compromise when we know we should stand up and be counted. The way we overcome fear is by reminding ourselves that we have nothing to fear. Jesus Christ, the creator of heaven and earth, the sovereign Lord, is reigning over this world and he is for us. He is working all things after the counsel of his own will. He is working all things together for us. We are on his side and he is on our side. Psalm 118 verse 6, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what man can do unto me. What can people do to us? You ever thought about that? What can people do to us? We lose our job. We lose the esteem of the world. We lose friends. We lose our liberty. Perhaps worse. But have we lost anything that God can't replace? Can God meet our temporal needs? Of course he can. And what have we lost when compared to what God gives us through Christ. What suffering is there that God can't sustain us through? Can he heal a bruised spirit? Can he comfort a heart that is battered by the antagonism and reproach of the world? Of course he can. And how does this suffering compare with what is ours in eternity? The Apostle Paul put it this way, for our light affliction, imagine Paul saying that, <laughs> for our light affliction, <laughs> which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Actually, if we read the New Testament, we discover that the apostles counted it a joy to suffer for Christ. 
When the pressure came to compromise, to deny what they know was true, to be silent, they resisted. They confessed Christ. They did the right thing. And yes, there was pain. Yes, there was loss. Some gave their blood. But to share in Christ's suffering, to bear witness to the one who gave his life for them, that was a great blessing. Fear thou not, God says to us in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. And then in the New Testament, the Apostle John comforts us with these words. He says, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Beloved, we must not be weakened by fear. But maybe it wasn't fear that drove these men to accede to Jezebel's wishes. Perhaps it was a desire for favour. That's the second possible reason for us to consider. Perhaps they felt that if they did this thing, as unethical and unpleasant as it was, that would put them in the good books with Ahab and Jezebel. There was something to be gained, advancement of some kind, more land, more money, more power for themselves. The same brute force that could destroy and take away life could also enrich. Tyrants can be lavish in their generosity as well as their cruelty. Perhaps the promptings of their consciences were pushed aside by the possibility of personal gain. Is not this the temptation that is often before our eyes when we are pressured to compromise? When we are pushed to remain silent or to act contrary to our Christian beliefs, there seems to be something to gain. The world's approval, personal advancement, more resources, more influence. And when we see Christian leaders and whole churches cave to the pressure of the LGBT lobby and abandon the traditional Christian view of sexuality and marriage, I wonder if it's simply because they want the world to like them. They want to be taken seriously by the academy and the media and the other centres of power in our society. It's not very likely that they suddenly discovered that their interpretation of the scriptures was incorrect all along. <laughs> They haven't really come to a better understanding of human psychology. They just want to be liked. The esteem and the applause of people who don't love God is so very valuable to them. And we can be tempted in exactly the same way. There were very devout people in Jesus' day, conservative people, people who even believed in Jesus but listen to two very sad verses in the Gospel of John. Chapter 12, verses 42 and 43. It says, Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. They should have openly confessed their faith in Jesus. They should have followed Jesus, but they didn't because they loved the praise of men. They loved the esteem in which they were held as religious rulers in Jerusalem. 
we have to be careful that we don't value the praise of men more than the approval of God. Because if we do, we'll compromise. We'll cave to the pressure and do the wrong thing. We have to be careful that we don't value the friendship of this world more than we value the friendship of God. James puts it bluntly in his epistle, chapter 4, verse 4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be the friend of the world is the enemy of God. The Apostle John puts it this way. It's a solemn charge. And it's what will save us from yielding to the temptation. It will save us from caving in when the pressure is applied. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world, and the world passeth away and the lust thereof. There's the right perspective. The world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. It might have been the fear of Jezebel, or it might have been the favour of Jezebel that moved these men to do this wicked thing. Maybe it was a bit of both. <laughs> and we would do well to learn from their example, to heed the warning. But there is one more possibility, and it's the most appalling. It may have been the case that when the letters arrived from Jezebel, the consciences of these men were completely untroubled by what they were being asked to do. The king wants us to do this. Sure, no problem. Let's, let's get the ball rolling. This is what John Gill was getting at in the paragraph I quoted to you earlier. That the elders and nobles of the city, the chief magistrates thereof, should be so sadly and universally depraved as to execute such a piece of villainy is really surprising. Idolatry, when it prevails, takes away all sense of humanity and justice. Could these men, in the grips of false religion have fallen so far into sin and moral depravity that killing an innocent man didn't bother them. <laughs> I don't know, but it wouldn't surprise us, would it? Sadly, we see this level of depravity all the time. People with total disregard for human life, who even celebrate the slaughter of innocent people. Uh, there are the radical feminists who defend abortion, who see it in almost sacred terms, and there are the terrorists who glory in shedding the blood of people who don't subscribe to their religion. So yes, we can believe that it's possible for people to become so morally blind and depraved as to not be troubled by murder. Perhaps these men were. Our consciences can lose their sensitivity. Our capacity to discern right from wrong can deteriorate. The New Testament talks about a seared conscience, a defiled conscious conscience, an evil conscience. We can get to that place where things that ought to bother us don't. We can get to the place where we're comfortable with that which God abhors. And when we're invited or pressured to do the wrong thing, we do it. In fact, there's not really any pressure because our conscience isn't troubled. 
This happens when we continue in sin. We know something is wrong, but we do it anyway, again and again, and we're unrepentant. After a while, that nagging feeling diminishes. We're less and less troubled within. Our heart becomes hard and cold, and that's an awful, awful condition for a Christian to be in. It also happens when we consume what the world generates without any filter. You know, what goes into our mind through our eyes and ears shapes and modifies and fine-tunes our conscience. If we want to have a conscience that is correct when it comes to right and wrong, then we need to have a mind that is being renewed by truth. A conscience informed by truth. And only the Spirit of God can do this. And he does so as we take in his word. This here, this is truth. This is the lamp for our feet and the light for our path. So let us be warned. Let us be careful, careful about what is shaping our consciences. Like the elders of Jezreel in this story, we will have decisions to make about what we're going to do, about how we're going to live and more of them as the world around us gets further away from God. Let us not be weakened by fear. Let us not be driven by the favour of this world. Let us do what we know is right. Let us stand firm. Let us hold the banner high. Let us confess with our mouths and with our lives our King, our wonderful Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. That's the message this evening, and it's a message for all of us, for everyone in this room who professes to be a follower of Jesus. But here's the point for this particular occasion. Here's why this text and this message is totally appropriate for what is being celebrated tonight. I'm not speaking with special knowledge. But I can say with all confidence that in 30 years of ministry, Pastor and Mrs. Mitchell have received many letters from Jezebel. Probably more than you would think. They've had to deal with threats, invitations and temptations to compromise, to be unethical, to gain a personal advantage to avoid difficult situations by not adhering to the highest standards of personal conduct. All leaders have to deal with these things, especially those who exercise spiritual leadership. Satan goes very hard after church leaders, believe me. Now, Sometimes those letters from Jezebel have been easy to deal with, easy to rebuff. I'm sure there has been no temptation whatsoever on Pastor Mitchell's part to collapse on the doctrine of the Trinity, on the deity of Christ, or on the inspiration of Scripture. But I have no doubt that some of those letters have been very difficult to refuse. It would have seemed so much easier to bend, to compromise, to lower the standards a little bit. It would have been so much easier to go along, to get along, to, to shirk one's responsibilities, especially when it comes to all of that messy interpersonal stuff. Sometimes resisting those letters from Jezebel has come at great personal cost, 
Doing the right thing has involved sacrifice that only the Lord knows about. Over the course of Pastor and Mrs. Mitchell's ministry, Coffs Harbour Bible Church has maintained its doctrinal fidelity and its gospel witness. It hasn't shifted on the essentials of the Christian faith and message at all. The light has burned brightly. Think just of, of all the children who've been reached with the gospel over the last 30 years through your youth ministries. Now, I'm sure there are problems. I'm sure there are issues that I don't know about. But I think it's safe to say this church is healthy and it's growing, it's fulfilling its purpose. That's a testament to the grace and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it also speaks of the personal integrity of your pastor and his wife. It stands as a witness to the fact that they have stood firm, done the right thing by you, and done the right thing by the Lord. And that is something to be honoured and something to be thankful for. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word as it has come to us this evening. Lord, we know in this world uh, we are often tempted to compromise. Sometimes we're even threatened. Uh, the pressure is on constantly to do wrong, uh, to, to lower the standards, to be a little bit unethical, to take the easier path. Uh, Lord, we're sorry that these men in this story took that seemingly easier path and compromised and behaved terribly. And we know that Naboth lost his life because of it. But Lord, I thank, thank you for the faithfulness of your servants here. I pray that you would continue to help them in their ministry and help us all. Help us all to stand firm on the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of his Holy Spirit, do what is right. Father, we thank you that you are indeed a mighty fortress. Bless us now as we worship you again in Jesus' name. Amen.